Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Gracious God, speak through me and despite me so that your people might know how great your name is. Amen. Please be seated. The story you heard is part of our series on sibling rivalry, and the more I preach on this theme, the more of you come up to me and say, me too, my brother won't talk to me, my sister can't stand me. Sometimes I hear stories of multiple generations of alienation between aunts and parents and grands and so on. Often it's over money and possessions and estates. And which parent is thought to have loved which child more or less? It's painful. The longer we go in this series, our musicians keep warning me, we don't have many songs on sibling rivalry anyway, and we're kind of plumb out of the ones we have. The songs we'll sing are more like siblings being reunited and reconciled, the thing we all long for. Bible gets around to that too eventually. And the story for today, well, that's a doozy. Some people think religion exists to teach people to be good. We act like that in children's sermons. Whatever the story is, kids, this is about how you should be nice and how you should include the new kid or whatever. Well, this story is about Abraham, our forebearer in faith, pimping out his wife, lying that she's his sister to save himself. Not exactly children's sermon material. And by the time I'm done, you might argue it's not exactly adult sermon material either. The story repeats twice more in Genesis. Once more with Abraham letting his wife Sarah go into Pharaoh's harem in Egypt. Another time with Isaac letting Rebekah go into another foreign king's harem. Three times in the Bible, Precious space is used to tell these stories of the sister wives, to show how reprehensibly our people behaved. Martin Luther, in the 16th century, said he drew no comfort from the stories of saints behaving well, but he drew deep comfort from these stories of patriarchs behaving terribly. Because if God can bless and use people like this, God can even bless and use Old Martin Luther. Now, most nations, most peoples don't tell their stories like this. Most peoples tell our stories as a succession of grandeur, each step one greater than the other. That's how I learned history in the U.S. Then we did this perfect thing, and then we exceeded it with this even perfecter thing, and then we saved the world again. You're welcome. Now, you Canadians have your own way of doing this, mostly by saying how morally superior you are to us Americans. This might be setting the bar a little low, my friends. Israel does things altogether differently. Israel's scripture goes like this, and then we failed again, and then we did this humiliating thing, and oh, can you believe it? We did this next. The first way of telling your story is a way of saying how great we aren't. 
The second way is a way of saying how great God is to bless and use a people like us. God spends most of the Old Testament, most of our lives saying, oh, please don't do that. Of course you did that. Yes, I'll forgive you again. Don't tempt me. And there you go again. That's life with God. Now, am I being too hard on poor Abraham or on all of humanity? I don't think so. Abraham, you might say, has no choice. Israel at this point doesn't even exist. It's a dream, a promise. But Abraham and Sarah, they're in what will become the promised land, but they don't own a square inch of it. They have no power. They're foreigners passing through, no legal recourse if someone does want to kill Abraham and take Sarah. This is also a problem for our planet's 80 million displaced people today. Will anyone protect us? If we call the police, will they just deport us? Or worse, what's to stop someone from exploiting us for our labor or for our bodies, taking everything we have? So maybe Abraham and Sarah are doing their best in a bad situation. But there are other stories where Abraham does trust, despite no obvious way forward. So God at one point says, take your son and sacrifice him. And Abraham says, righto, where's my knife? Let's get going. He assumes God will make something happen. But then here, Abram tries to hustle an impossible situation. Another time, Abraham hustles again. When 90-year-old Sarah can't conceive, the couple agree to let Abraham sleep with Hagar to try and produce an heir. Hustling, where there's been no proof of the promise. God says, no. This child will be Abraham's child, not some foreign king. Sarah's child, not Hagar's. That's the one I will make. Now, you can admire Abraham's hustle. I'll handle this. But it would have been better if he'd have trusted God to make a way out of no way. A friend of mine lived in Jerusalem for a while and would go swimming with a Palestinian friend. He was running to meet him at the Y. I hate people who exercise on the way to exercise. And he comes across his friend who has a flat tire and is called a tow truck and is waiting. And my friend, who's American, said, tow truck? Let's fix this. His Palestinian friend had not even considered that <laughs> as an option. But a little good old-fashioned American elbow grease, and they're on their way. And my friend reflected, that's the best about America. Roll up your sleeves and fix this thing. It's also what we did in Iraq. Let's fix this. Didn't exactly work out. Most nations, like most people, our virtues are very close to our vices. Abraham is a hustler, he's a fixer, and he's not a truster. Not yet. Here's why his sin is as bad as all of that. It repeats the very first sin. In the garden, Eve gives in to the serpent's temptation. Abraham is complicit. They're both ruined, and so are we. In Gerar, Abraham gives in to the temptation. Sarah goes along complicit, and the promise of God is nearly ruined. People who say history repeats itself 
are close to right, but not quite. It doesn't exactly repeat itself. It repeats itself with variations. It rhymes. So pay attention to the patterns. God appears in a dream to King Abimelech of the Gerites. And they have this little theological debate. God says, she's married, you'll die. And Abimelech says, hey man, I I haven't touched her. And everyone told me she was his sister. God says, I kept you from touching her. Don't claim credit for that. Give her back or everyone's dead. Now it sounds kind of harsh and Old Testament-y, right? But then again, who is this king? A pagan neighbor of Abraham's. The Gerites are a foreign people with the wrong religion. Israel is always either fighting with or sleeping with its neighbors and enemies. Something very human and sibling rivalry-ish about that. But God appears in a dream to this foreign king of the wrong people to keep that whole people from dying. Debates theology with him. God gets him to do the right thing. Tells king what's his name that God kept him from doing the wrong thing. This is the Bible, remember? In the Bible, God's people do everything wrong. And the wrong people do everything right. And that's staggering. Usually we think of religion as something we get wrong and we should critique other people for. The more you read your Bible, the more you'll realize, no, God uses these stories to critique us and teach us using our enemies. Now, you might say there are other stories in the Bible where the only good foreigner is a dead foreigner. And you are correct. There are those stories. Kill the Amalekites and all their sheep. Wipe out the Canaanites. Take all their stuff. But then in the very next chapter, usually there go the Amalekites again. There the Canaanites are. Like you've just hit reset on the video game and the bad guys are back. In other words, these commands to wipe out whole peoples never actually happen. It's true in our lives too. We pray that God will wipe out all of our problems. Have you ever noticed God actually answering that prayer? No, they're still there. Even after we say amen and God promises to help us. It may be God is leaving them there to teach us something. There are other stories in the Bible where foreigners, enemies, are a source of grace. Moses, you can't get much more important in Israel's story than Moses. Moses marries a foreign woman whose father is a priest in Midian. Moses, the leader of God's people Israel, has his family with not only a foreign people, but the head of a foreign religion. And his father-in-law often offers him advice that Moses takes about how to Moses. It's the same with Ruth. She's a Moabite woman, a people that are Israel's enemies. And she marries into and becomes part of King David's family tree. She's his great-grandmother. These stories say about foreigners, we wouldn't have Israel without these other people. We wouldn't be us without our stories interwoven and threaded together with our enemies. It's the heart of Jesus' teaching as well. The poor inherit everything. The mourning get all the comfort. The lowly are super exalted. And you are not yourself. 
without your enemy. In fact, God is using your enemy to make you holy. It's not much fun, though, is it? The great A. Lamont says you can be pretty sure you've made God over in your image if God hates all the same people you do. So does this have any relevance for us today, for our various sibling rivalries in our families, under our roofs, at work, between nations? It feels like not. Not too many of us have been tempted to pimp out our spouse to a foreign king. If I'm wrong about that, please tell me in the handshake line after church. Drop me an email if you're online. But think about this a little more. There's a story that Mennonites tell when they're asked whether they're a Christian. You might say, yes, I'm part of that church. Yes, I was baptized. Yes, I accepted Jesus into my heart. This Mennonite story has this response. Am I a Christian? I don't know. Ask my neighbor. Yikes. Well, King Abimelech is a good neighbor. Abraham is a terrible neighbor. Not just betraying his wife to a foreign king's harem, threatening the covenant. Abraham also threatens his neighbor. The Gerites are in danger of being wiped out for this infraction. Abram is the sort of neighbor who leaves a casserole full of poison and then complains when you don't return the dish promptly enough. Don't live next to this guy. Faith, real faith, isn't about some sort of status achieved to say someone else is bad. Faith is loving your neighbor, your enemy. And so, being transfigured together into a whole new humanity. The Welsh poet Waldo Williams asks this, what is forgiveness? Finding a way through the thorns to the side of the old enemy. What is forgiveness? Finding a way through the thorns to the side of the old enemy. That's not easy. Crawling through thorns, but it's the only way to life. Not many of you yet have gotten to hear me lead a wedding. Anyone wants to get married, I'm available. Please let me know. Every time I lead a wedding, I tell the couple three words that will save their marriage. Of course, they think the words are going to be, I love you, right? But I have them turn to one another, and I say, repeat after me, I am sorry. If you're here with someone that you've made promises to, turn to them now and repeat after me, I, come on, out loud, I am sorry. Do this on the computer too. You're not exempt just because you're not in the room. Let's keep going with this. This one's even harder. Ready? Repeat after me. You were right. This one might be even harder. Ready? Repeat after me. I was wrong. Last time. I am sorry. Good. Those are hard things to say. King Abimelech knows how to say he's sorry. He not only restores Sarah untouched to Abram, he gives Abraham sheep and oxen, a thousand pieces of silver, and Abraham's first piece of the promised land. Abraham has won the lottery. Settle where it pleases you, the king says. This foreign pagan king, wrong religion, wrong people, does what God commands 
and then does much, much more than God even asked of him. Do you see? The wrong person not only gets it right, he gets it so much more than right. So what can we learn from this king of the wrong faith? We can learn to say, I'm sorry. We just practice that. This is what church is, by the way. It's practice for how to be human. That's why we do these things. Jalen and I remember asking our kids when they were first learning words, what's the hardest word you've learned to say? The one that's hardest to articulate, the one that's hardest to pronounce. And our youngest said, I am sorry I hurt you and I won't do it again. (laughs) Some of the best peace initiatives that we've seen between Israelis and Palestinians have been to have surviving family members who've lost a child meet and talk through their pain. They find in each other deep humanity at that point, and they emerge to work for a different kind of peace based on compassion. So Abraham comes out of all of this a very rich man. But King Abimelech comes out of it well, too. Abraham prays for him, and his wife's womb is opened. In fact, all the women in Abimelech's house have their wombs open, whether they had wanted them opened or not. Just suddenly, everybody's pregnant. You've got to watch out in these stories. There's a dangerous fertility Afoot. This is striking. God cares about whether the Garites have children. God wants a future for this other people. You see, God choosing Israel doesn't mean that other people are cursed. God loves them too. It's just that the way God loves is God loves all of us through Israel. God begins with Israel to get to all humanity. This is just the way God chooses to bless. God's blessings aren't for God's people. They're through us for everybody else. Did you hear the prepositions? Your English teacher was right. Prepositions are very, very important. God's blessings aren't for us. They're through us for everybody else. Now remember this when we think of anybody else as an enemy for any reason, religious Anything else, God cares if they have children. God wants them to have a future. God hears their cries and answers their prayers and appears to them in dreams and wants them to live and flourish and do the right thing, especially if we can't stand them. And then this, God loves granting life where it shouldn't be. God does his best work in tombs surrounded by death, or in wombs where there's no life. God says, perfect. I am birthing new life right here. God loves to give the childless countless children, to give the lonely families, the poor friendships, and the wounded healing. That's true for Israelites, ancients, and Israelis, present day, for Palestinians, Gazans, Christians, Muslims, Jews, Ukrainians, Russians, you and your neighbor. W.H. Auden says this, and poets don't usually make commands. So listen to this poet's command. You must love your crooked neighbor with your crooked heart. I think if I'm asked if I'm a Christian, I don't really say ask my neighbor. I say ask this neighbor. Not that one. (laughs) This one who I like to invite over and hang out with, not that one who hates my guts. 
But Christ died for all of us. And God loves giving life where it shouldn't be. And that brings us back to the point of this story. Here it is. Don't pimp out your spouse to a foreign king. I mean, really, it's bad form. Write that down. Don't do that ever. Here's the actual point. God gives grace where there should be no grace. That's it. Abraham behaves more poorly here than any of God's people anywhere, arguably. And he comes out wealthier, better, more blessed, his wife back, a rich man, first plot of land. Not because he's good. Not because he earned it. But because God is good. And God is ridiculously generous. Salvation's like that. All we bring to God is our brokenness. And all God gives us back is healing. There's another story this one foreshadows. When the entire Israelite people are enslaved in Egypt... The covenant promise is under threat because Pharaoh wants to exterminate this slave people. And God delivers through Moses. I don't mean God delivers them a long time ago, far, far away. I mean God delivers us who see no way out. And when the Israelites leave Egypt, their heads are held high and the Egyptians take off their jewelry And they throw it at the Israelites. Here, take our gold. Take our silver. We will pay you to leave. We can't get you out of here fast enough. And they walk out loaded down with treasure. Back pay, you might say, for hundreds of years of forced labor. Reparations, you might say. It's a weird way to leave. It's not because they're particularly well-behaved. The Israelites are terribly behaved in the Exodus stories. It's because God is generous. And God loves to make a way out of no way for people who do not deserve it. Well, here's a prayer from the Church of Scotland. I have had enough of sad saints and sour religion. I have had enough of sin spotting and grace doubting. I need some laughter, Lord, the kind you planted in Sarah. But please... May I not have to wait until I am 90 and pregnant. (laughs) I think generally, we and most people think religion says this. Behave. Be better than those other bad people. If you're reading carefully, here's what Scripture actually says. Those guys you hate, they're better than you are. And Christ is transforming them and you together into a whole new humanity starting now today. Don't think you deserve it for a second. I mean, you don't. Have you read the stories? It's happening because God is amazing.